What's up, Beardos? You're listening to episode 121 of The Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to, don't be a jerk. Don't answer the question first, I'm not answer the question. I really hope people didn't tune in to hear us talk about beards. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And we are the Bearded Vegans, a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com. And you can always reach us by emailing thebeardedvegans at gmail.com. In today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been eating, do some follow-up and news, and then ask the question, can we turn speciesist news stories into productive pro-vegan conversations? Hmm, pretty interesting. Mm. Paul, I'm going to guess the answer is yes, or else we wouldn't be covering it. (laughs) You never know. You never know. Stay tuned to find out. So before we get to our normal episode, we have a big announcement to make, and that's that we've decided to launch a Patreon account. Yeah, this is actually a pretty big move for us because over the years, we've gotten a lot of emails from people saying, we love the podcast. Can we financially support you? Do you have a a PayPal link? Do you have a Patreon? Some way for us to sort of back it monetarily. And we even read one such email in a mailbag episode kind of early on. And I believe our response at that point was basically, you know, we didn't start this podcast to make money. And we were both in a position where we didn't really need any extra money to sort of push it along or or to invest in equipment or any of those things that a lot of podcasts do need. We just sort of happen to have all that stuff. And we, I remember we debated whether we should put ads in the show and ultimately it just felt like we didn't want to mix up money with something that was in our minds, a very altruistic endeavor. You know, we started the podcast to to spread a message. We started a podcast to create a place for people to not feel so lonely in their veganism for all the isolated vegans out there. And just to have conversations that we wanted to have that we weren't seeing broadcasted in too many other, you know, vegan media outlets. And so just, we were just kind of like, yeah, we don't really need money. But, you know, as things do, they change over time and the demands of those things change and our personal situations change. And that brings us up to our present moment where we've sort of reached the point where we said, you know what? We would never want to ask for money unless we really felt like we actually needed it. And we're at a point where we do feel like in order to make the podcast what it needs to be, it's time for us to launch a Patreon page. Now, Andy, for those unfamiliar, can you explain what a Patreon account is, please? So a Patreon account, for anyone that that doesn't know, is a crowdfunding platform. And it's different from something like an Indiegogo or a Kickstarter because those are platforms where someone says, I have this one project that I'm trying to do and I need, you know, $3 million to do it. So give me money now and then, then you're done and you get some reward in the future. Patreon is different because it's more of a platform to support content creators on an ongoing basis. So you can kind of set the level of support that you want to give to a content creator. And that could be like a dollar a month. It could be $10 a month. It could be, you know, whatever thousand dollars a month <laughs> that you want <laughs> that you want to give to someone so you sort of say what's my budget uh do i get value out of this content this this web series or this this blog or this podcast in our instance and you get to decide how much you want to support us and this is something that paul you and i have certainly anguished over for a while if mm-hmm. we should do this because 
you know, this started out basically as kind of just a hobby. We didn't know where it was going to go and how much time it was going to be for us to to put these episodes together. And as time has gone on, the time demands of the podcast have grown so large that I know for me personally, like I run my my own business. And before we started the podcast, it'd be like, OK, I do all this work and then I have two days of a week to sort of relax and take care of myself and have fun. And now that time is all filled with podcast stuff. And I mm-hmm. like love doing it, love reaching everybody. I, I enjoy doing it so much. And I think it's we've learned it's a really valuable platform for reaching people and helping them in their vegan journey. But it's also become a thing that's just so unwieldy. And, and as it grows, we're like, we want to do some cool stuff with this podcast. We want to do things like getting transcripts of every show made so it's more accessible to the deaf and hard of hearing. We we looked into that, Paul, and it is so expensive to do that. Um, we've had to replace several microphones, and you've had a life development recently that has incurred some some big financial costs on us. Yeah, so I'm I recently moved to Philadelphia. So uh, b- before we were kind of using my old apartment with which had all my brother's equipment and microphone as our kind of headquarters and now we don't really have the headquarters anymore and i'm trying to go back to school and and so there's a whole bunch going on we're trying to take the elon musk spaceship to the moon and record a podcast there there's a whole (laughs) bunch of developments going on yes indeed so anyway with all of that said basically if you want to support the podcast you can go to thebeardedvegans.com slash beardo and that'll bring you to where you need to go and you can sign up and you can choose what level do I want to support these guys at? And we know that this is not something that everyone can afford. I know that like my favorite podcast in the whole world I listened to for like four years before I donated anything to them. So we totally get that. If you feel like financially supporting the podcast is not within your means, there's certainly other ways that you can help us out. One of the big ones is giving us those ratings and reviews on iTunes, but also posting the links to new episodes that come out and sharing them with friends and saying, I think you'd love this podcast. Check them out. Things like that. You know, we've grown entirely off of word of mouth over these last two and a half years. We haven't advertised or anything. So I'm, I'm always a little shocked at how many people have found us and all the <laughs> wonderful emails we get from people all over the world, like from Scotland in our last episode. And of course, if you do choose to contribute, we're not just going to give you nothing in exchange for that. So even if you just contribute $1 a month, and if everyone that listened contributed a dollar a month, we'd be in a very good position to really take the podcast to the next level. But even if you just contribute that $1 a month, you'll get access to our Patreon-exclusive feed. And in there, we're going to be putting bonus episodes, and we sort of have, have some some benchmarks set for every time we get this certain amount, we'll put out another episode, but we're also just going to be dropping them in there occasionally anyway. And in fact, we've already put the first episode in there. And that is that we did a review of episode one of the new Netflix series, rotten lawyer, lawyers, guns, and honey, which <laughs> oh, uh, has it's a very hyperbolic title, I think, <laughs> but that's, that's in there for your listening pleasure right now. We'll probably do some more of those. And there's also a video of bloopers, from our little Patreon video that we made. We attempted to do this a while ago, and it just sort of never came to fruition, but we yielded a ton of great bloopers out of that. So if you want to see us (laughs) being unable to speak words in a visual medium and not just the podcast, you can see that's up in there as well, and we'll continue to put new things in there. But not to worry, this this is not going to affect our normal releasing schedule. You're still going to get a free episode every Wednesday, regardless of if you can donate or not. And again, we, we super appreciate all the support. 
And there's some other fun prizes. You can get uh, button stickers. You can hear episodes a day early. So all that stuff, if you want to learn what those uh, reward levels are, you head over to thebeardedvegans.com slash beardo. Cool. All right, Andy. Yes, Paul. What have you been eating? Uh, Paul, I have eaten so many delicious things lately. I'm trying to narrow them down. But the first thing that came to mind was that I recently visited Haymaker's Corner Store, which is an all-vegan market in Brooklyn. And they have a little deli case. And in there, they had these containers of this banana bread pudding, which I'm sure Droopy Dog would love to consume that banana bread pudding and (laughs) we got it because we wanted something sweet and there didn't seem like anything else in the store that we really wanted and i was blown away by how good this banana bread pudding was Hmm. i've never had such good banana bread pudding uh and i'm so sad that i got it and now i'm on the other side of the country and i won't be able to have it for (laughs) some time again but definitely get that at haymakers corner store as as I record this, I'm in Phoenix. I just got here about two or three hours ago, and I made a little stop at Green New American Vegetarian, which is an all-vegan spot that does everything from, like, a vegan Big Mac to some really good salads. And I had to get those crab puffs. I know I've raved about them before, but they're essentially like a vegan crab rangoon, but more garlicky. Uh, posted a photo of that on the Instagram, and people are eating it up right now. So <laughs> head over to the Instagram. <laughs> I always have to give Green a shout-out because they make such delicious stuff. And that's all I'll say for now. But definitely be following along on that Instagram because a lot of good pics getting posted there. Yeah. <sighs> Paul. Yes, what went in that beautiful mouth of yours? So actually nothing exciting, but I do have I do have a missed food connection that I'm tempted to post on Craigslist because while I was in Connecticut last weekend, I saw so many people posting about this the Triangle Tavern in Philadelphia, which is literally one block away from where I live. They were they they had a special that was a mac and cheese calzone and it looked so good and I saw so many people post it and I'm so sad that I didn't have it. So I didn't eat too much stuff, too much exciting stuff. I did have China pan for my, my annual birthday China pan dinner, which is always enjoyable. <sighs> I but... would be remiss to not wish you a happy birthday on the air, Paul. Thank you, Andy. I know, I appreciate I know it has it. passed, but I'm so glad you were born. <laughs> but wish I, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Wish I could have gotten that Triangle Tavern mac and cheese calzone though. Till next time. I'm, you know, I'm surprised more people haven't done the mac and cheese steak that just seems like such a natural combination of words and flavors <laughs> that I'm a little shocked that's not something I've seen before. Now now I crave it. I know. So, Andy, hit us with this first bit of follow-up. Whew. Well, as predicted in our episode that we did with the Vegan Warrior Princess's Attack, Callie and Nicole, that we were talking all about these developments of this, you know, allegations of abuse and misconduct within sort of the upper rankings of a lot of the animal welfare groups. And it was such a long episode, Paul. It was just under three hours, which is Mm -hmm. twice as long as what our episodes normally are. And I think normally probably both of our podcasts would be inclined to make those two-parters. But just with the the speed and rapid development of this story, it felt like if we did a two-parter, it would just be so out of date by the time the second part came out. And yeah. I am really glad that we didn't do that because there certainly have been some huge developments on February 16th, uh, Nonprofit Chronicles, who was putting out a lot of really great articles about the various figures that have the allegations against them, 
posted one about Alex Hershaft, who is the founder of the Farm Animal Rights Movement and also the head and like the chair of the Animal Rights Conference. And we talked about this a bit in our episode, essentially talking about how he was really holding back the progress of the the conference to be to be what it needs to be to really fulfill its potential. And then also just some other little issues with him and this nonprofit chronicles article that we'll put a link in the show notes. Originally we were going to talk extensively about this, but there's been so many developments that have happened since, but I will say about this, that it kind of goes through a lot of the issues with Alex Hershaft over the years and, and women, you know, sort of saying things that he's done that have made them uncomfortable and incidents that he's been involved in. I think most notably is one that uh, Patrice Jones wrote. It was originally a private Facebook post, but Patrice shared it with Mark Gunther, the author, and it's posted its entirety in a link in this. So we'll put a link to that as well called the shape of the movement. And it was about this incident involving Howard Lyman being the MC for the big banquet. For those who don't know at the animal rights conference, on the Saturday night of the conference every year, there's this big banquet and fundraising is done and awards are given out. And um, some some really horrible comments were said about women by by Howard Lyman, according to this account. And Alex didn't rectify the situation, uh, which is putting it very mildly. But we'll we'll leave it up there for you to read for yourself and and make up your own mind about everything. But basically this whole article was detailing a lot of really bad stuff that didn't make him look good, but especially what made him not look good was his own words and his sort of his own defense of himself. And, you know, people had talked about how he's often seen making out with women at the reception banquet and his defense is, well, I'm a bit of a folk hero and women like to come up and get pictures and, and hug me and stuff like that. And, and uh, in the article, a few former farm employees spoke out against him and, he basically just said they, oh, they have a grudge to hold and all of that was like pretty bad. But then after the article was posted, he left a comment. <laughs> he was the first comment, which was essentially trying to discredit the people that spoke out against him and say, well, they were fired for this reason. And it was, it was just like not a good look. It's one of those things where it's like, you should just say nothing. It's better if you say nothing right now. And Jen Riley, who also is a, a high up, person at farm stepped in to defend the employees and it was it was a real big shit show mm-hmm. and we were like uh and it's only a matter of time before you know this this really comes to a head and shortly before recording this episode the animal rights conference arconference.org posted that alex hershaft is no longer the chair of the conference and jen riley and don moncrief from a well-fed world are going to be taking over that position they're going to co-chair and I guess we'll see what changes they make. That remains to be seen. But I think that it's definitely a big step in the right direction. I know that a lot of pressure was applied by various sponsors and, and donors to the conference saying that they weren't going to support the conference anymore if Alex was still involved. So it seems like those pressure tactics worked. And I, am, I for one, am excited at the, the potential future for this conference. I know in our last episode we did talk about do we need a big conference like this? And I think that remains to be seen. I, I do think there's a lot to be said for smaller decentralized conferences, but I, I'm curious to see what happens in different hands. Yeah. I think with, I, I think one of the reasons we were very skeptical about it is because of the positions that they, that it often takes, but with different hands, maybe they'll take, you know, d- different positions on certain things that, 
we are more favorable of. And in that sense, I think we would be like, yeah, this is good that th- that these points of view are getting so much more exposure because of a big conference. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, well, I guess we'll see. We'll see how they uh, deal with the growing pains of of everything that's happened this year. But it seems like more this year than any year previously, at least since I've been around, there's been a lot more movement and pressure to, for things to change. So I am going to choose to remain hopeful for the time being. Movement in the movement. <laughs> movement in the movement. And, Paul, so let me ask you, There's, there's been sort of – we talked a little bit about – should straight white men choose to not speak at this conference and the way the conference works is people have to apply to speak they're not they're not being solicited by the conference which i think is one of the problems i think that if the conference recognizes that there's areas that are underrepresented it's sort of their duty to go out and find those speakers and bring them in and pay for their travel to come in because otherwise they're only going to get the people that apply and obviously, if you have a, a conference that's been promoting and giving the most visibility to certain demographics, those are the ones that are going to feel like the most entitled to apply and, and feel the most at home there. But there was this talk about, well, should straight white men just choose not to apply? And Paul, do you think that that position is still a good one now that there's been a change in leadership? I, I do think that it it's it's still okay to apply. I think that the like the committees that have the responsibility of choosing who is on there, you know, should look at the candidates and and try to get a more diverse range of speakers. But I I certainly think it's a it's a valid position to take to not to not apply for something like this. Yeah, I mean, I think that overall, though, it's it shows like a better sense of solidarity for someone to choose not to apply and not to even put the onus on the organizers at all. I think there's probably more importance for for, you know, straight white men to not apply when we know they're going to be put into a position where they're more likely to get chosen given the old organizer. And maybe that won't be the case with the new organizers. But given everything that's going on, I think it still makes sense for for us and say us as our collective white men group here to to not apply. I think it's okay to sit this one out for a year or maybe even a few years. I think that I don't think there's anything like horribly wrong with with that. And I think that maybe if people do apply, they should at least refuse to take any plenary sessions, which is when you're speaking to generally most of the people at the conference are at these giant plenary sessions in the morning and the evening and to at least refuse to speak at those big ones. I feel you. So I guess it remains to be seen, but I, I for one, am very curious to see what the impact of the conference is going to be this year and what sort of solutions uh, are found with the new organization. So let's move on into our next bit of follow-up. And, Paul, we just did uh, an episode asking, should vegan restaurants ban fur? I had a lot of fun doing this one. I thought there's a lot of interesting points on sort of either side of that argument. And we posed the question to to our Facebook page and got a lot of really good responses. And they a lot of people respond to things that we didn't specifically mention or some angles that we didn't really take. We kind of alluded to, but we didn't really explore. So I thought it would be interesting to, to read a few of these responses and talk about one one more article that sort of came up in the midst of all of this just because I think it's it's good to cover all of these points. So uh, our first one comes from Stacy O on Facebook who wrote maybe a non-threatening sign inside the restaurant to the effect of quote 
Ask us why we don't wear fur or leather. It opens things up for conversation instead of judgment. And we got a few comments like this. People saying, put up a sign that sort of says, ask us why, or something to that effect. That's like more educational mm-hmm. to open things up. What do you, what do you think of that? I do like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. The, the, the whole opening up the conversation, I think is a super key part of it, but I was in a vegan restaurant a few days ago that just had a few sti- like amongst a lot of other stickers, some of them pro vegan, some of them just, you know, of other vegan companies or, or other restaurants or establishments. But there were a couple that, you know, just had the word fur with the, like the red line through it, like no fur. And mm-hmm. like, I feel like that's still not, it's not attacking. It's not, you know, like you'll see, you'll see, stickers that say things such as only assholes wear fur or or like don't be a dick and wear fur you'll see those and this one is not obviously is not as accusatory as those are so i think those would still fall under the the realm of non-judgment but this one that stacy brought up i think is is taking the one step further and saying like let's have a conversation about this thing which i think is could be beneficial yeah, definitely. I think we we brought up the point that it'd be good to just have literature on why, say, fur is harmful within the restaurant. But I think that this specifically is a way that would have a lot more of a productive outcome because it is a face-to-face conversation. So, yeah, I'm all for it. Thank you for that yeah. suggestion, Stacey. Uh, Sarah D. wrote on Facebook... What about a restaurant labeling itself plant-based and thus being vegan-friendly but accessible to all and having abundant literature regarding non-food animal products like fur, leather, feathers, wool, silk, glues, etc.? I think it's important for non-vegans to be exposed to plant-based food and environments and to exclude them will not increase our numbers. Said plant-based establishments could also host clearly promoted events say like a fur free friday where it can be a vegan safe house and a sign out front completely ask that no animal products be brought inside the premises win-win so so i feel like we probably both fully agree that putting out some literature is always a good thing people can Mm -hmm. check it out peruse at their own leisure what do you think about this this idea of a vegan restaurant that specifically has days when they say no one wearing fur can come in on these days is it the is it the best of both worlds? I'm trying to think because I'm I'm trying to think if it would be something that would be, you know, strictly enforced or rather it's just something that's advertised so that attention is brought to it. For instance, you could say like, "Oh, today's fur free Friday and it's always advertised on the Instagram or it's always advertised with like a little sign outside fur free Friday or something like that." And even if it's not even if it's not, you know, strictly enforced, even if it's just this sign outside that that's politely asking people not to bring animal products, because again, like we talked about last week, it's going to be impossible to, you know, check that someone's not wearing anything that's an animal product, but for, you know, for a little easier to check for. But I I think even if it's not strictly enforced, I think that could still have some benefits because it's still getting people to think about it. I mean, I guess the downside is that you might get people that were going to eat there and then get there and see the sign and are like, oh, I guess I can't eat here today or something like that. But I don't know, maybe put like a coat rack in like right outside of the the restaurant and they have to hang up their coats there. 
<laughs> they walk inside and then people promptly throw red paint all over their coat and hang on the rack <laughs> like a, a nickelodeon uh <laughs> what was it like the ooze stuff that they used to always pour down yeah. on people <laughs> yes just a, a big bucket of red paint just falls down on people uh, yeah at first i was like oh maybe this is a good compromise but I'm i'm sort of wondering if the fact that they're saying explicitly no fur on these days is it then almost taken as like an endorsement of wearing fur on the other days? Like I, I feel like vegans would be some vegans would be so pissed off to be like, oh, they only <laughs> don't allow fur on certain days. Like it almost seems like it's worse than than not saying anything. I I guess I, I I do agree with you that I do agree with you that I think many vegans would put up a stink about it. I think that the one benefit that might come from this is that you would get some people to think about it by by having it not necessarily super in their face but they're still made aware of this thing and maybe getting some people to think about it then i don't know also slime was the word i was thinking of not goo <laughs> for so i know so someone was definitely listening and be like did he just call that nickelodeon thing goo <laughs> slime time live. so i was just going it's slime it's slime <laughs> hold your tweets <laughs> we don't even have a Twitter, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> so, I, I, but I do agree with you that I think that in some ways, people, I, I could see people thinking of it as endorsing for other days than Fridays. Yeah, well, I would love to hear what other people, our, our beautiful beers out there, think about that. And then uh, one final email came from uh, Diana V, who emailed in. One point I think you didn't really touch on, though, was that most vegans, I'm assuming, want fur to be banned everywhere if that is one of the goals of our movement doesn't it make sense to start with the establishments that are most likely to be owned and run by vegans so what about this paul is this something that can actually sort of set a nice domino effect in line like we need a few people to stand up and say no fur will not be allowed here to make it more normal for other restaurants to ban fur this is you know this is a this is a really good point that Diana V brought up because I don't think we did touch upon this specifically maybe last uh, last week or two weeks ago whenever we talked about this three weeks ago <laughs> <laughs> who knows I don't know I don't know but I I guess I'm trying to think about like the the transition that people make and and how for me that I'm I would much rather have someone, you know, go all the way and, and just go vegan and care about all of the issues surrounding that zoos and fur and leather and all those things, rather than just trying to get really work towards just the fur thing. And of course, someone could make the argument, well, this it doesn't really take that much to just have a sign that says no fur. It's not like I, I someone's spending their time doing this instead of promoting people just to go vegan all the way. But I guess I'm just trying to think of the transition that people make. And and if someone has no exposure to veganism at all, how they would react if this was the first kind of exposure they got to. I guess that's the only thing that I'm worried about in this scenario is could it possibly turn people off from veganism depending on how it's how it's implemented what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's valid. I also think that it seems highly unlikely that any restaurant that's not vegan would ban fur. So I don't think that vegan restaurants banning fur would necessarily like set an example 
or even make it like an easier climate for fur to be banned from everywhere. You know, I kind of think that if fur is going to be banned, it would have to be the production of fur, not like not like smoking that is slowly getting banned from like all these public places and hotels and things like that. I just, it's hard for me to really see that taking hold in our society. And, you know, I am someone that is fully optimistic that one day we will have an entirely vegan world. But I feel like that that sort of avenue is not necessarily a path. And I think that all of the the upsides that we talked about of why a vegan restaurant should allow fur, I feel like those kind of outweigh the potential upsides of banning it in terms of sort of starting that first domino from falling. I guess I do agree with you, Andy, that I don't see vegan restaurants banning fur as leading to other restaurants banning fur, non-vegan restaurants banning fur. I think I disagree with you, though, that I think that fur being banned is a much more is much more likely to happen sooner than a lot of other goals that vegans have. Because, I mean, we're already starting to see some fur production being made illegal in certain places around the world. So it's it's like, yeah, so it's like kind of happening. And and I do think that this is because of the particularly brutal nature of fur and the particularly in your face nature of it. So I do think that it could be banned everywhere. I guess I, I don't think that, I don't necessarily think that a vegan restaurant banning it is going to be the thing that pushes it over the edge, though. So for that reason, Andy, I think I do still agree with you that the pros of allowing someone that's wearing fur into a vegan restaurant to hopefully, you know, get them to move further down that spectrum towards becoming vegan or becoming more a more compassionate individual, I, I think that does outweigh the gain you would get for specifically banning fur. Yeah, yeah, and I think we touched on this idea that food is where it starts for most people. So I feel like there's more benefit in getting someone in and eating the vegan food and going vegan because vegans don't wear fur kind of mindset versus saying, well, let's just ban fur but not get people to go vegan. Obviously, the people that work on these fur campaigns are, generally speaking, are vegan and want people to go vegan as well, so I don't want to say that that's not what they're trying to do. But I think that there's a lot more benefit in getting someone to go vegan than than in banning one specific thing. And I think that the benefit of someone eating food at a vegan restaurant vastly outweighs the benefit of banning fur from a specific restaurant. Agreed. And you found an interesting article. Yeah, so this is this article is from New York Post called No Kill Shelter Has to Remind Volunteers Not to Wear Fur or Canada Goose Items. This is from February 9th, so this is a few weeks ago, but still pretty recent. And this article reads, The No-Kill Animal Shelter... Bideoe? 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 Sorry. <laughs> it's just a Bideoe. <laughs> it's just a Bideoe. <laughs> Sorry for the pronunciation. Needed to remind its animal rights volunteers not to wear fur and Canada goose items to events, in case that wasn't obvious. There have been protesters targeting animal welfare groups wearing fur and Canada goose labels this winter season. Kate Lombardi, an events manager at Bidawee, wrote in an email to staff and volunteers. 
So as to avoid harassment, we are asking our staff and volunteers not to wear fur and Canada Goose labels to events. We know it's cold out there, so please feel free to bundle up in other ways. And then the article also references a video of a, a protester confronting someone that worked at the shelter that was wearing Canada Goose. And just like one of the quotes that the person said in the video is, shame on you for wearing real fur while trying to get dogs adopted. You are a hypocrite. So it it seemed very confrontational and very intense. And in general, I'm I'm Andy, I'm not a fan of shaming people. Mm-hmm. I think didn't 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 we have a a good shame conversation like dozens of episodes ago? We did. We, did. we talked about the difference of, of shame versus guilt, though. Yes. Guilt is about a specific act, whereas shame is sort of about like who you are as a person. Yes. Yeah. And 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 I think the the conclusion of some of the articles we read was that you're not as likely to make changes based on shame. Correct? Yeah. So I don't know. I just thought I'd insert my two cents there. What do you th- what do you think of the what do you think of the uh what do you think of this, Andy? I mean, I don't know if I love the the delivery method of the message, but I feel like if there's anyone that you could get to understand to to sort of feel like, oh crap, I shouldn't be wearing this fur, it would be someone that's working to help save animals, to, specifically dogs, you know? Yeah. No, yeah. I I agree with you that it seems like it is it's certainly bizarre to be, you know, wearing an animal while you are helping animals. So so yeah. cut that out. Yeah. I mean I, I guess I just wonder is it better to have a conversation with someone and be like, it's so, uh, I love that you're doing this to help the animals. Have you ever considered this thing versus throwing a, a camera on someone and, and yelling at them about it? Yeah. I think there's probably better ways to open people up to that. Yeah. But maybe some might say it's having an effect if they have to remind their volunteers not to wear it. But I, I, like they're having to remind their volunteers not to wear it out of fear yeah 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 that's true and yeah it's interesting because it's not like they're saying please don't wear these out of respect for the animals they're saying please don't wear it because it makes us look bad yeah and because we don't want people yelling at us (laughs) yeah which makes us look bad so uh, yeah it's definitely it feels like the shelter doesn't get it it seems like they're just like please please just don't wear this stuff because it's just more of a hassle than it needs to be Nothing about, like, you should consider not because you're wearing dog fur on your jacket. And it's, please don't wear this here, you know? Yeah. So, like, are they just going to wear it as soon as they leave? Who knows? (laughs) I don't know. So, Andy. Yes, Paul. I have a a new segment to propose, and that's... (laughs) You're going to propose it live on air without talking to me? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not actually going to propose a new segment, but... I did have something happen to me that is neither a follow-up nor news, and, and I feel like I just wanted to tell you about it on air. <laughs> this is uncharted territory, Paul. I don't, so, know, I don't know how to deal with this if I can't conveniently categorize it into follow-up or news or main discussion. <laughs> so I was watching, uh, I, I was watching Netflix, as, as people do. I was watching Netflix and chilling, as, as the youth do. And By yourself? By myself, yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll and, let people make whatever conclusions they want out of that. 
and I was watching. <laughs> oh boy! And it was the new stand-up comedy special, Todd Glass, Act Happy. And I was not super familiar with Todd Glass. I had I had just earlier that day heard him for the first time on a podcast, and I said, "This guy seems funny. I'm going to look at this new Netflix special that he was promoting." And it was funny. I enjoyed it a lot. But I was pleasantly surprised when he had a, a couple bits that that were pretty strong on the animal rights messaging. I looked it up afterwards. I could not find anything about him being vegan or vegetarian, but he had a whole bit about SeaWorld. So he said something about SeaWorld and I was like, huh, that's that's pretty cool. Talking talking bad about SeaWorld. And then he went on to have this other bit that I was very surprised by because this is something that I feel like a lot of non-vegans and even vegans don't think about. And it's about pets. It's about having companion animals. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna read through the 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 dialogue because you should go check it out because there's in no way uh, uh, there's no way that I'm gonna say it that's in any way funny or comes off as funny. But you have such a nice reading voice, Paul. <laughs> essentially, it was about declawing cats, and and he was essentially saying, oh, he said to his friend, oh, I could never, I I couldn't own a cat because they they claw up the they're gonna claw up the furniture, and that person saying to them. Like, oh, no, no, you don't get it. You just have to get the cat declawed. You have to adapt the cat to you. And that's for for someone that I think is not vegan or just even like anyone to kind of come up with that, that, that line of thinking I thought was really cool that, that we as humans think that it's okay to do these things to animals and, and think it's okay for us to adapt them to us. Do you know what I mean? I'm terribly phrasing this, Andy, but am I kind of getting the point across? Yes. I don't know if it's a particularly new sentiment, but it certainly was humorously put in this it, special. I don't know. I, I don't really see people. I feel like I don't really see people talking about this too much. I mean, people about... talk about not declawing cats all the time and how it's the equivalent of removing the first knuckle on each finger. And but, I feel like that's pretty but... common. But more than that, just the idea of how how silly it is or how wild it is that that we think it's okay to kind of do these terrible things to animals so that they can then be our companions, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like it's like this is not how they this is not what what a cat would normally do, but because we want this cat so badly, we're going to put them through these terrible things so that they can then be okay for us. And and I don't know, I feel like that's a a a, a very well thought out uh, position for someone that again might not have anything to do with animal rights. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I like the other examples that he gave. Oh, the other examples were like he was like. Oh, my daughter wanted a giraffe, so I had its feet cut off, and my son wanted a lion, so I had its teeth sanded down. Yeah. <laughs> Paul, I so you told me you wanted to talk about this special, so I then listened to it. Not I didn't watch it, but I listened to it while driving, and I was like, what the hell did Paul have me listen to this for? I can't believe I just <laughs> listened to a full hour-long Todd Glass thing, because I've never been like a huge fan of his. And I thought you were wanting to talk about this bit where he talks about... <laughs> Like sucking on his dog's lips. <laughs> I was like, what the hell did Paul see in in this special that he was like, yeah, that's a really good point. 
But, uh, yeah, at first I did not like this special at all, and then it grew on me, and uh, by the end of it, I think it got better. It definitely got better. It got better better as it it got on. I feel like the audience wasn't even laughing, like, for the first half. Like, they were getting some (laughs) chuckles here and there, but that was it. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it, Andy. But, yeah, no, it's a nice vegan sighting in non-vegan places, sort of. There we go. That's the segment. Vegan sighting (laughs) and non-vegan. Vegan and non-vegan places. Yeah, so someone make us some uh, intro music for that. (laughs) All right, let's move on into the news then. So, Andy, what's this first news item? Oh, well, this one's coming to us from the classic Veg News, which is Ranchers Petition USDA to Define Beef. This came out February 15th, 2018. The United States Cattlemen Association, the USCA, filed a 15-page petition with the United States Department of Agriculture, the (laughs) USDA, this week to coerce the organization to define the term beef in anticipation of the debut of clean meat, meat grown without animal slaughter in a lab setting, also known as lab-grown meat. The petition asked the USDA to define beef as products that, quote, come from a cattle that have been born, raised, and harvested in the traditional manner rather than coming from alternative sources such as a synthetic product from plants, insects, or other non-animal components and any product grown in labs from animal cells. This This sounds so familiar. It does, and I feel like we not not but a few months ago talked about the battle over whether mayo could be called mayo with the whole hampton creek thing but but more recently the the milk industry there was some some fighting over that and there was some story we talked about that was not in the u.s but essentially the lawmakers were wanting to ban the use of the the word meat in association with vegan products and so this is kind of another in the a long line of this industry sort of desperately flailing to maintain market hold it never seems to work. Yeah. And this is interesting because the article is framing it as if they're poisoning themselves to deal with, with the whole clean meat, the whole lab-grown meat, cultured meat thing. But they also say from insects and also just from plants. So so they're trying to attack anything that calls itself beef, like those Maywa beef nuggets or something. Like They wouldn't be able to call yeah. it that anymore. I feel, like a, <laughs> I feel like a lot of ways that these products get around it is they'll just change one letter or something like that. And then that's like the chicken chicken stuff a lot of times will be spelled slightly different. They take out the E at the end. Yeah. yeah. Or they, they spell this B-E-A-F or something. But it's like, I don't know. I, I feel like it's it's silly. And I don't I don't believe that it's going to, to go through. But even if it does, you know, it's like they'll change that one letter or something like that. They'll they'll add an extra e. It'll be b e e f. <laughs> oh no! It'll be b e e e f. He's a math spell. teacher. He's a math teacher, not an English teacher. Well, I got thrown off because I said it'll b b e e e f b b b, and I I don't really foresee it having, at least on the fake, quote fake the 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 plant produced products the ppps but on the i guess on the clean meat it might have more of an effect yeah i mean i feel like that would just be a matter of there would probably have to be like a label on the product stating where it came from i think that's going to be a battle that we're going to see raging in the next few years just like we have the battle for if the thing should be labeled as being gmo or not yeah 
But I feel like this battle, whereas the GMO battle has a lot of everyday people on its on its side, the this battle I don't, you know, it's like the ranchers and the meat industry. That's who that's who wants it. Which obviously that's a that's a massive industry. But with GMOs, I feel like you could get, you know hundreds of thousands of petitions for people that are just you know scared of the word gmo and will sign a petition whereas if you're like hey let's ban the word beef in certain places they'll be like what why does like who cares (laughs) yeah you could say that those ranchers aren't particularly jolly paul (laughs) (laughs) nice that was a good one i like that all right it's time for the next installment of dairy's inevitable downfall (laughs) theme song Uh, this is posted on february 8th and it comes to us from agriculture.senate.gov where i get all of my news Uh, senate reaches (laughs) bipartisan deal to improve dairy safety net so i'll read a little bit from that article u.s senator debbie stab now or stab now apologies to debbie democrat from michigan Ranking member of the U.S. Senate Committee on Agriculture, Nutrition, and Forestry today announced the U.S. Senate has reached a deal to provide immediate support for dairy producers. The bipartisan Senate budget agreement will provide over $1 billion to support dairy farmers. The deal will also return cotton to the commodity safety net and strengthen disaster assistance for livestock and specialty crop producers. So this is something that's been getting a lot of coverage in the vegan news outlets, though, of course, a lot of them are talking much more about the dairy than the cotton aspect of this. I am not entirely sure how much what is actually happening with the cotton. That's not really detailed too much in this article or any of the vegan ones. Uh, And this is sort of the most neutral of the sources that I could find. And the article does detail some sort of bullet points for what this actually does, like make a significant investment for dairy, increase affordability, target those most in need, make farmer-friendly improvements, allow flexibility. Uh, And you can read all that in the the article that is linked right there. Uh, Paul, this is not the first time we've seen a huge bailout of the dairy industry from the government, even in the, the, the two and a half years that we've been doing this podcast. We've talked about it at least once before. And I'm just wondering why... Does this keep happening aside from capitalism? <laughs> so you, I mean, you're calling this segment dairy's inevitable, inevitable downfall, but it's like this, this makes me sad. You know, that this isn't, I, I feel like, yes, it's showing that, that dairy is not sustainable, but it makes me sad that the government is trying so hard to sustain it. And $1 billion is not a small amount of change. No, that's several millions, Paul. It is. <laughs> I'm no math teacher, but that's definitely at least a few millions. <laughs> so, I don't know, it, it it stinks. I think it it's it's unfortunate that this is happening instead of just, you know, letting the the tides of change wash over the dairy industry, they're doing something like this. I I think it's it's you know, in in that one episode where we were talking about automation and people losing their jobs because of like losing their jobs to machines, and then we talked about the what's it called the um, uh, universal basic income, and just I, I feel like we need to be able to change. We need to be able to grow and adapt, and something like this is kind of 
it's like refusing to change. And obviously I'm saying this because it's, I want it to change in favor of the thing that I want, which is no more dairy, but still, I don't know. I feel like it's just showing kind of a, a lack of being able to adapt to what's currently going on. And that's apparently people do not want as much dairy. Yeah, I'm just wondering, like, why can't they just invest a billion dollars into making more sustainable food sources and exploring alternatives to animal agriculture? Because that's not where that's not who they're being paid by. Yeah, but it's like how <laughs> they're getting paid by lobbyists for an industry that's going under that can't even afford to sustain themselves. Yeah, but if 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 you're getting paid a billion dollars to do this thing. Even if you're like, well, this isn't going to last, you still get your, you know, your billion dollars. Not obviously, each, the politicians are probably themselves not getting paid a billion dollars. But <laughs> if you're getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, you don't care if you don't care what the position you're going to do is. You're just like, sure, give me the money and I'll, I'll say whatever you want. Paul, are you trying to tell me that most politicians don't have the best interest of their constituents in mind? <laughs> I'm sorry to break this to you now, Andy, live on the air for the first time ever. What? (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know. It's, it's, it stinks. Yeah, it definitely does. It's, it's so depressing and it makes me, it makes me wonder, you know, how can we prevent this from happening in the future? This is, this is stuff that's above my pay grade, but like, how can we make sure that this bailout doesn't happen yet again? I don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. I guess just putting more pressure on politicians, but unless that pressure comes in the form of dollar bills, I don't know if they're going to yield to it. Yeah. Well, email us in your suggestions (laughs) how we can fix this. (laughs) But uh, until then, that's been the latest installment in Dairy's Inevitable Downfall. (laughs) All right, Paul. Mm -hmm. Hit us with this main discussion. All right. So the main topic this week is can we turn speciesist news stories into productive pro-vegan conversations? And and it really came about from two separate instances that I saw. So we're going to talk about both of them. Obviously, these are not the only two cases of speciesism in you know the United States or the world, but these were the two stories that came across my dashboard, so I figured I'd talk about them. The first one is... Going into the Olympics, so the Winter Olympics in in South Korea have obviously been getting a lot of press, but specifically, there's been a lot of news outlets covering the the South Korean like dog meat farms, and like CNN, USA Today, The Mirror, The Mail, they've all covered it and been like. The articles, you know, are like exposing the the atrocities, the atrocities, exposing the atrocities <laughs> happening in South Korea. And like this article from CNN in the shadow of the Olympics, a brutal trade in dog meat. And this other one from USA Today inside the grim scenes of a Korean dog meat farm just miles from the Winter Olympics. So like they all have this kind of tone to them. And we've we've had this similar discussion before when it came to the Yulin Dog Festival and and how you know so many non-vegans will attach to this because it's about 
it, because it's not something, you know, that they're specifically eating. It's not something it's, it's about this, you know, the beloved companion animal. It's about this other animal that they care so much more about, but really it has these very racist and xenophobic undertones because often the kind of image that it's promoting is this like, Oh, this, this, this brutal nature of, of how they treat these animals. And, and it's so much more like disgusting than anything that we would ever do when in fact it, we're doing the same things. And, and I actually saw a different article that I'm not going to go into, but it's an article about it's a response to the story of, I guess like over two thirds of UK, the KFCs in the UK shut down a couple weeks ago because of some, some i don't know meat like packaging thing or something like that they didn't get the all the chicken that they needed but in that article they go through they list some of like the the most brutal and horrendous ways that that people have treated these chickens in slaughterhouses and you know so it's it's not like we're doing anything in the US anything differently it's just a different animal and uh i i just think it 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 really rubs me the wrong way when I see people, you know, talking about this sorts of things when this is happening in, in our own backyards. And I, I think it's, it's just easy to, it's easy to say like, Oh, the, those people over there need to change something, but it's harder to say, I need to change something about my own lifestyle so I like I get why people do it, but then of course like vegans are promoting this stuff too. But I, I I just think it it unfortunately has these kind of racist undertones to it many times. And you know I, I I'm I'm positive that there are people in these countries in South Korea that are doing work for this. So you know if you want to do something about it, support those people, but don't just you know go into someone else's culture and and act like you're more superior to them when we're basically doing the same exact thing. I mean, don't go into someone else's culture and tell them what to do anyways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Because I think that some people say, well, I am vegan. So I, therefore I can go into this other person's culture and tell them what to do because it is a morally consistent, ethically consistent statement for me to make. And, and again, I think, like I was saying, I, I I'm, there are people, you know, doing work there are animal rights activists in these countries doing this work so if you really want to do something about it find a way to support them because if change is going to happen in those countries if if you know constructive and long-term change is going to happen it's probably not going to be from a bunch of white people from the u.s going over to south korea and and yelling at a bunch of people over there it's going to come from the south korean activists themselves yeah, and of course it rarely ever gets to that point where people are actually going there to do something. It's usually people just posting like racist rants on Facebook about it. Yeah. And you you said, you know, racist, you know, undertones. I feel like often it is just very blatantly out there. And you know, when you dive into the comment section on a lot of these articles, it's people using a lot of either really blatantly racist uh words or some really, you know, coded words like barbaric and primitive and things like that. Savage. Savage. Yeah, that's definitely a big one. And 
yeah, it's just like an excuse for people to unleash and like, oh, those people are so savage and those people are so barbaric and it, it's just it's just very frustrating, especially especially when it comes from non vegans. But I think you know vegans, it's like yeah, like you said, Paul. Let's focus on our own backyard. There's so many people that I can reach. I can have a face-to-face conversation with just by walking down the street. Why do I need to all of a sudden focus on something that's happening halfway around the world? Yeah. And and from, you know, if if nothing that Andy said resonates with you from an, uh, an efficiency standpoint, you're probably not going to be able to change some <laughs> – you're probably not going to be able to change – a culture that's halfway around the world. You, you're going to have a much better luck changing the people that are closer to you or closest to you that are most like you. So work on work on those people first. Yeah, definitely. And so, so Paul, the the mm-hmm. way we're trying to frame this discussion is how can we take stories like this, which are inherently speciesist because they're just focusing on one particular animal how can we take stories like this and actually use them to our advantage? Can we turn them around? Can we use them as a platform to leverage a discussion about veganism and the sort of the inherent worth and the inherent cruelty of using any animal at all? So I think the, one of the biggest barriers we're going to face is that like you pointed out, Andy, most of these, most of this, this sort of this issue specifically is being brought up you know in facebook posts and in online news articles where not many super duper productive discussions happen very often but i I do think you know you can kind of if you can if you can find a way to redirect this person's feelings about these specific animals and get them to then feel that way about the animals that they're eating like I think that's that would be a productive thing to do. I, again, I think it's going to be difficult if you if if all it is is an online like an online post and most people aren't super receptive when you criticize them on Facebook, but I think that it might be a start. Yeah, I was just reading this article. I actually posted it to our Facebook page over the Beard Vegans there about how like the science behind why having a productive argument or discussion or debate or conversation via Facebook is sort of inherently a hard thing to do and often sort of set up to fail before it even starts. And I, I would love to have more of a, an in-depth discussion about that in the future, but yeah, I find that generally speaking, confronting people about this kind of stuff on Facebook is, not the best thing or not like the most effective way to go. But I do think that if we frame it like it's so awesome that you care about this, have you thought about this? When you sort of praise someone for their involvement or for caring about animals, it's so awesome to see people caring about animals. Um, You know, I love my dog just as much as these dogs in the, the Korean dog meat trade. And because of that, that led me to explore veganism as opposed to, you're such a hypocrite for talking about this. Like you should just shut your mouth about any of this stuff because you're not vegan right now. There's, there's a framing device that you can use to talk about these issues that it's not 100% guaranteed, but it's way more likely to lead into a positive conversation and to get people to think about what you're saying 
when you sort of frame it like it's really great that you care about animals. And I would say that even if you don't reach that specific person that you're talking to, remember there's a lot of silent onlookers that are watching you and seeing how you interact with people and just showing that you are sort of respectful of them and praising them. People can see themselves in those comments and that might open them up to what you're saying as well. Yeah, I I definitely think that with these online Facebook arguments or discussions that happen, I do think, you know, nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of 100 even, you're probably not going to reach that person that you are having that back and forth debate with. But like you said, Andy, it you're undoubtedly reaching a lot of other people, at least in terms of visibility, you're reaching a lot of other people. And, and if you, if you, you know, are polite and constructive about the way that you frame things, I do think that people see that. And like when you're the person in the debate, it's hard to, it's hard to get past like this other person has the opposite views as me. So I, I'm going to read everything that they say as an attack against me. Whereas if you're just, I don't even want to say unbiased, but if you're just an onlooker, I think to some extent you're going to be less likely to feel personally attacked. Yeah. And I think that the dog meat trade, not specifically South Korea, but we've talked about this on the show before, usually in June when the, the Yulin dog meat festival comes up and all of these issues just sort of play themselves out over and over again. But there was another story that came out in the news pretty recently that I think really made us want to talk about this particular aspect of how can we use these stories to our benefit. And so, so I'm going to bring that into our conversation now before we continue on. And that is the hero cow. And that is the name that has been assigned to this cow. Um, I'm going to read an article. This was posted about this cow was posted about everywhere, like everywhere. So I'm going to read one from foxnews.com. This, <gasps> this is not even from like a local station. This is just straight up foxnews.com. And uh, this is from February 22nd. Hero cow escapes slaughterhouse and hides on an island for a month. So I'm just going to read a little bit about uh, what this cow went through, because this cow is certainly pretty badass. <laughs> a cow escaped death by ramming a fence and swimming to an island in southern Poland. The cow was being led toward a truck bound for the slaughterhouse on January 23rd, the BBC reports, when she broke free and ran through a metal fence. One farm worker sustained a broken arm and bruised rib during the cow's escape. The cow swam out to the nearby Polish islands of Lake Niski, where she remained for weeks thwarting capture. Mr. Lucas, who was the, the proprietor of the farm, I believe, said he tried to capture her from the island, but each time he went to retrieve her, the cow would swim off, saying, quote, I saw her diving underwater. <laughs> when firefighters came to rescue her, the cow swam out to a nearby peninsula on the island to escape them. Mr. Lucas eventually gave up on returning her to the farm and instead visited the island to leave food for the animal. Aww. This is this cow is pretty awesome. Pretty awesome cow. And how nice of that person to uh, <laughs> feed the cow that they were about to slaughter. Yeah, it was very kind of them. 
And uh, the article goes on to say, the fugitive cow has been called a hero by one local politician, Powell Kukiz, who made it his mission to save her from the slaughter permanently. Kukiz wrote in his post that he wished to see the animal, quote, live happily ever after and die a, quote, natural death. Though Kukiz admits he is not a vegetarian, he still wanted to reward the cow for her attitude. So just, this story is just so fascinating to me. It's not the first time we've seen something like this, but we see these stories where animals escape slaughter. It's usually a cow. Sometimes it's a pig. It's rarely a chicken, I think. At least they don't get too much recognition for it. And And all of a sudden, the public at large, not just vegans, are like really rooting for this animal. They're rooting yeah. for this animal to escape the evil villains. But I'm like... You're the evil villains. This cow is escaping <laughs> you. You know, it's it's yeah. it's such a weird phenomenon that happens. Like, what is it that people will sort of mercilessly mock the death of an animal and be all joyous about eating a hamburger? But then as soon as one sort of escapes the lineup, people root for that animal and don't want that animal to get caught. Is is it just like when you're watching like a nature documentary, Paul? And if the if the focus is on the lion, you want them to get the gazelle. But if the focus is on the gazelle, you want them to escape the lion. Is yeah. it is it just as simple as that, or is there some complex mental social mechanism going on there? Planet Earth too. That iguana, that baby iguana scene where the iguanas are escaping the snakes. Oh. So good, so good. I think that. As soon as humans in general sense any sign of some human emotion from an animal, then that animal is kind of changed in their eyes and they, they see that animal more in like more hum, like human. And I'm doing air quotes right now that they see the animal as more humanized and because then they think like, I wouldn't want this to happen to a human. Like, I don't want this to happen to that animal. Like, I, I feel like that's what it is, is that not always, but I feel like with many of these stories, there's some aspect where the animal is humanized and therefore people can connect with them, whereas they they just didn't connect with them at all. Or if maybe it's not that they didn't connect with them, but they actively, you know, put barriers between themselves and feeling any sort of compassion or empathy for the animal because causing immense pain to those animals is just a part of their everyday life and and if you are someone who feels empathy for this animal but still continues to consume the animal like i can only imagine that the guilt would be tremendous so in order to kind of not have that guilt you put those put those emotional barriers between yourselves and i feel like these sorts of stories break down that barrier Break down the barrier. Break down the wall you threw today. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's probably a good hypothesis there. And I think so. Some of the other animals that we've even talked about going way back to episode number one, Cecil the Lion. Then we talked about Ferdinand very recently and how the the gentle barn, you know, adopted a bull and named them Ferdinand and then the the whole, the Harambe situation and the common thing between these three things, Andy, they all have names. So I think we figured out the way to uh, save animals. Just got to name them all. 
Name all the animals. I guess so. You know, I've actually read reports on how that is something that helps people connect more to an animal is by by assigning them a name. So I I don't think you're off base on that one. And again, I I feel like it just I'm I'm no, uh, you know, psychologist or sociologist, but I feel like it has to do with it's like it, it allows us to feel more empathy towards these animals if they, the more that they remind us of ourselves, kind of, the more that they remind us of emotions and, and identities and those sorts of things, which I don't even necessarily agree with. I, I don't I don't think that animals, you know, need to be the same as us for us to care about them. However, should we exploit this to our benefit? Or, or would that be would that be going down the wrong path, and then would we eventually like, yeah, it'll help us get to a certain point, but then there will be some point, like some barrier where we will not be able to to overcome because we've used that tactic of trying to humanize animals the whole time. Well, you're saying like we can only name so many animals, and eventually we're gonna. <laughs> You know, like we can't put a name to every every one of the billions of animals that are slaughtered every year. What I'm saying is, like in general, for for assigning animals, you know, human traits, like for instance, this animal, like wanting to escape and and having, like you know, you you can tell by reading this article, it's like anyone that that's reading this would get the impression like, oh, this, this cow like really wants to escape. And, and I know what those emotions might be like. So that's why I'm feeling empathy for this animal or, or, oh, I can, I can understand the situation that this animal is in and how I would feel if I was in that situation. So I, that I now feel for this animal. What I'm saying is I think that that is a very effective way to get humans to have empathy for animals. However, mm-hmm. I feel like that tactic also has some limitation where it's like there's some frog or something like that. And I'm like, Hey, stop, stop killing these frogs. And someone's like, I don't care about this frog. There's no, I have no connection to this frog or some animal like that's like, maybe it's a chicken that, that but you're like, but that's Doug the frog. <laughs> but you know, it's like, we don't see, like you pointed out, we, we don't really see these sorts of stories as much about, for instance, chickens, because maybe it's it's harder for people to connect in that way with chickens. I mean, we do see on Thanksgiving, you know, the, the president pardons a chicken, and that's kind of you strange. Mean turkey, a turkey, turkey, turkey. I know the difference between chickens and turkeys. The president <laughs> pardons a turkey, and and that's like I I feel like that's the closest we come to one of these mainstream stories. But I feel like there are animals that are harder to to do this sort of tactic with like pigs, for instance, it's easy. And you see it all the time. People say, Hey, did you know that pigs, you know, have the intelligence of a, of a three-year-old baby, a three-year-old child. Cause essentially what we're trying to do is we're trying to say like, Hey, think of this pig as if it were a three-year-old child and you wouldn't want these things to happen to a three-year-old child. Yeah. When in, when in reality it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't, it shouldn't matter. We still shouldn't do this regardless, but that's just a tactic that's often used. And I guess what I'm posing to you is, should we continue along that line knowing that it will, it will most likely get to some point where someone's like, nope, I can't connect to this animal, this specific type of animal at all. It's very hard to humanize this animal. So therefore I'm going to keep eating it. Them. I, 
I feel like it's it would still be worth trying. Like if it fails, it fails. But I don't think that it should mean that we like don't use that tactic. And some people just won't connect with certain animals. And I think that maybe that's important when you get the foot in the door and you get them to care about pigs and cows. And then hopefully you get them to care about chickens and, and fish, fishes. And, you know, I think that, yeah, there's definitely an empathy gap with certain types of animals that are harder for us to relate to or harder for us to sort of compare to animals in our lives. Like, oh, yeah, like this pig is kind of like my dog. And you know, your pig is not like a fish, you know. Yeah, but I but I still think there's probably value in using those tools. And I think specifically, in terms of what we're trying to get at with this conversation, I think that there's definitely a lot of value in using these these stories that come out the Cecils, the the Harambe's, the the hero cows here that we can use those and we can leverage them to get people to talk about veganism. And I think it's important for us to be there to make sure that the conversation doesn't stay singularly focused on this one particular animal, but to sort of productively draw attention to the plight of all the animals that are stuck in the agricultural system. And again, I think that it's important for us to, to frame it in a very productive and non-judgmental way, because if we just run out screaming, you're a hypocrite, if you care about this hero cow, but not all the other cows that you eat all the time, people are going to get really shut off from that message. No. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I think that again, this sort of like redirecting tactic when it comes to these sorts of things is, I guess that's like the best, I don't want to say the best we can do cause I don't have any evidence to back that, but I guess that's a, a constructive thing in my opinion to do is, is just this sort of redirection of this one specific instance to, to th- getting people to think broader and yeah. and getting people to broaden the empathy or the compassion that they're feeling for this one specific animal to more than just one animal. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, maybe, and, and you know, I, I think that, I genuinely think that some people, some people that post about this kind of stuff, like, don't even, haven't, have never even probably thought about that before just because this stuff is so ingrained in our culture so, you know, maybe you you will reach more people than you th- than you realize if you kind of, you know, hijack someone else's convert like someone else's Facebook post about this sort of thing and post something on there because then you're reaching all the people that see that specific post. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you, Paul. Well, I think we'll leave it off there. We'd love to know what, of course, you think about this. You can send us an email to thebeardvegans at gmail.com. And uh, don't forget to go to thebeardvegans.com slash beardo if you want to support the podcast financially. Yeah. So, Andy, what do you got coming up? Well, March 25th, I'll be at the Vegan Street Fair in Los Angeles, California. Really looking forward to that one. It's always a huge one. It's the largest single-day vegan event in, I think, the world now is what they're what they're claiming. March Ooh. 31st, I'll be at the Andy Veg Fest in Indianapolis, Indiana. <laughs> April 7th, I'll be at the Nashville Veg Fest in Nashville, Tennessee. April 14th, the Wilmington Veg Fest in Wilmington, North Carolina. April 29th, I'll be at the Veg Fest, Michigan in Novi, Michigan. So that's a packed schedule. You can find all those dates, deets, and links over at CompassionCo.com. And if you do come out to those events, look for me behind the Compassion Company table. And uh, say what's up, Beardo. Get a button and sticker. 
and look for me outside the Triangle Tavern, begging them to bring back that mac and cheese calzone. <laughs> yes. So, Paul, the this Todd Glass special that you had me watch, mm-hmm. it's very... I, I didn't force you to watch it, Andy. <laughs> I know. I just felt like I couldn't have a discussion about it unless I actually saw it. And... <laughs> It's very unconventional. Like, he has this, like, eight-piece band on stage with him. Yeah. And it's just, it's all very bizarre, but not as bizarre as his closing joke, which was just him repeating the following seven words. We are the Bearded Vegans, signing off. I do have a, a a missed food connection no. that I'm tempted to post on Facebook or on uh, sorry. I do have a missed food connection that I'm attempting. Uh, Goddamn! I do have a missed food connection called the shape of the movement. Can you hear that truck? Nah. Yeah, sorry. Big truck. Someone might make the argument, well, this isn't necessarily taking away from any other, like, any other, uh, uh, like, it it doesn't, yeah. Andy, how do you pronounce that name of that place? The shelter? Bidawee? Bidawee, I don't know. (laughs) Bidawee? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to edit that out. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, Democrat from Michigan. Stabenow? Stabenow? Hopefully Stabenow. Hopefully Stabenow. (laughs) Quote, I saw her diving underwater, Mr. Lucas told someone. (laughs) Now you know how it feels, Andy. (laughs) (laughs) We, We had... Domoski, we we <laughs> we had Domoski, we had Domoski.